Hello and welcome anyone who's tuning in, leaders and non-leaders alike. Anyone who's listening, we are so excited and happy that you are joining us. This is the Rooted Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Panetta. As always, we are in Salem, Oregon, right downtown in studio today. It's a beautiful day. The sun is shining. Yesterday, it poured rain all day, which is pretty normal here in the North Pacific Northwest. But today is beautiful, so it puts a smile on my face. Uh, as always, I like to reiterate where we came from and what we're doing in terms of this podcast. We are part of Groundwork and Leadership Institute, which is here in Salem. And our goal is to raise the tide of leaders in our community, truly build greeters from the ground up. Always sounds a little cliche, I know, but it's what we really believe in and it's what we're trying to do. And we wanted to be intentional in our part in helping cultivate leadership here in Salem, Oregon. So that's a little bit about us. Like I always say, so if you're the first time, this is your first time listening, that's what we do. That's why why we're doing it. There's a lot more to say about it. But the reason why we started the podcast is really simple. We took it seriously when we became an institute to do the best job we can of housing knowledge and gathering as much information as possible because we're not we're not experts and we don't claim to be experts in leadership. Uh, but we believe that as a community, um, we can be experts in leadership if we can learn as much as we can from those around us. And so that's why one of the reasons why we started the podcast and it's been doing well and taking off. So please share this, listen to it, share it with your friends, your family, your colleagues, and hopefully you'll keep coming back. So today I just want to introduce our guest uh, before we get her on Zoom. I'm really excited about today. Uh, You know, typically we, well, not typically, we've been about close to 50-50, but we have a lot of guests that are from our community, you know, people that that I get to see often, um, that I know well, and then we have guests from the outside, you know, well-known speakers, authors, thought leaders, and so it's kind of fun to to mix it up. And today we have someone from the outside, they're not from here in Salem, uh, but I actually, and I'll, I'll reiterate this when she gets on Zoom, but I, I first heard her speak and met her a couple of years ago. We launched this initiative in part of our community to engage in some of our high need neighborhoods. And one of the metrics um, that we are measuring uh, to to basically gauge our success is uh, foster care, uh, among other things. There's a lot of metrics that we have, but one of them is foster care. And Amelia, her name is actually Dr. Amelia Frank Meyer. Uh, she is a national advocate um, for uh, national advocate for child welfare, um, uh, kind of overall. And so she's she's incredible. She spoke at this event that we launched this initiative at, and I was I I spoke at the very beginning. I was kind of like uh, you know the when a musician <laughs> plays, I was. You know, I was the person that plays before that nobody really knows, uh, but I I helped set the stage for the event, and uh, Dr. Amelia Frankmeyer was the keynote speaker, you know, a little little thereafter. And she was phenomenal, um, really inspiring, and her story and her expertise, you know, is off the charts. Um, she currently is the CEO of uh, Alaya Innovations, 
um, and she received her Doctor of Education at the University of Southern California in Organizational Change and Leadership. So she's a great fit for this podcast uh, to talk not just about what she does as an advocate for the child welfare um, uh, system and 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 for kids in general, but also for leadership. So um, just really, really blessed to have her on. And I'm going to get her on Zoom right away and we'll get started again. Thanks for joining. Hope you enjoy today. All right. We are back and we have Amelia on Zoom with us. Amelia, thanks for joining our show. My pleasure. Good to be with you today, Chris. Yeah. And as I, you know, as I mentioned, um, you know, in my introduction, I, uh, I introduced you already, but we always love to hear from, from our guests, uh, a little bit about their story and, and, and how they've gotten to where, where they are at. But just as a, some further context, you know, I mentioned this already, but with you on, I wanted to mention it again. You know, I obviously I've met you on Zoom a couple times. The first time I met you in person, the only time I met you in person was a couple of years ago at an event that we had um, here in Salem uh, with an initiative that we launched and that we organized as uh, Mountain West Philanthropies here. Um, and it's funny because in my mind, we call it the August 1st event. <laughs> That's just what we called it leading up to it. And when we reflect back, we still say, hey, remember the August 1st event, even though it was about two years ago. Uh, and so you were the keynote speaker there. And if you remember, I uh, I was, what what is it called when you go to a concert and the band, you know, has a, has a, somebody that plays before, what are they called? They have a name. The opening act. Opening act. I was I was opening act to you. I if you remember, <laughs> I I spoke at the beginning uh, there, um, but just warmed the gra- warmed the crowd up for the the real show. So yes. Um, but you were awesome there. Uh, you know, I was inspired and and I loved your stories and your examples. So hopefully today we can we can hear some of those um, things. And just for listeners to know that event that we had was the launch of initiative to uh, engage in some of our highest need neighborhoods in our community here. Um, and we centered them around some elementary schools. And gosh, within just a couple mile radius is where we have some of the highest poverty, highest crime. And so one of our indicators and our metrics in those areas is to reduce foster care. And um, I know that you, you know, I mentioned in your introduction, you're a, an innovator when it comes to the child welfare system, and that's kind of your thing. So uh, we're hoping that we can hear a little bit about that today as well. But enough of me talking. Um, go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself, um, whatever you'd like to share, kind of your story, what got you you know, to where you're at today. Sure. Um, so let's see, I've been working in child welfare. I was just uh, recounting this for someone as we're in the new year of 2021. This will be my 32nd year uh, doing this work which seems a little um, crazy to say out loud, but it's the truth. And uh, I started my work in Illinois uh, running group homes for um, duly diagnosed youth. So, you know, uh, developmental um, delay and schizophrenia kind of uh, youth. And I just loved it so much Um, and and did that work for a lot of years. Um, There were multiple group homes in central Illinois where I was and um, what came to to happen is that, you know, in, in working with these youth day in and day out, 
um, you you develop a lot of affection for them. You're really serving in a parental role. And I was, um, you know, trying to make the home as family-like as possible. We were doing family vacations. We had t-shirts that represented our, our unity, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I was taking these kids home on the weekends for home visits and supervising home visits. And uh, the parents had other kids at home. Yeah. And these kids would go, you know, maybe for a whole weekend with their families. And then it just made no sense to me um, that they were with us during the week. You know, if they could, parents could parent other kids and if the kids could be okay on the weekend, why in the world were they living in this kind of an, you know, group institutional environment during the week? So um, I just became really um, kind of fixated on the idea of kids, kids belonging at home. You know, they were just the, I could see the pain-based behaviors of not being connected to the people they loved Mm -hmm. and um, really became dedicated to that. So um, ended up moving to Minnesota and, and ran a multi-state treatment foster care agency for 16 years. And my first order of business was to say in my interview, if you're hiring me to put more children in placement in the homes of strangers, people who they don't know and who they don't love, um, you probably should not hire me. (laughs) But if you are hiring me to uh, figure out a way uh, to have children be safely at home, then um, I'm your gal. And so they did end up hiring me, even though the the committee was made up of half foster parents. They still hired me, even though I was saying I wanted to move kids out of foster care. And over those 16 years, we went from 38% of our kids leaving foster care and going to permanence when I started to 84% when I left. And so we formed a 10-year partnership with the University of Minnesota Center for Advanced Studies in Child Welfare. And every year just made incremental progress towards what do we know? What is best practice around the country? What does the research say? Um, And really trying and iterating new ways of work to get kids to permanence. Um, And then, you know, got really good at that. And we're doing that work in, in many jurisdictions. And people started to call and say, seems like you figured out some things about placement stability and permanence. Could you come talk to us about it? And Pretty soon I was traveling all over talking about that and not really running this agency. So um, talked with the board and they helped me launch a separate organization that moved from one child, one family at a time to one system at a time. And we launched Aaliyah. Um, now it's, you know, we're in our sixth year and we work with child welfare leaders all over the country and in Canada mm-hmm. to help them build new ways of work for children to stay safely with their families, not from their families. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're really about. Yeah. I, I, uh, um, I love, you know, I really admire, um, the work that, that you do and, and, and others like you. Um, uh, you know, I, I have had limited experience working with, with kids. My wife is a, she's a elementary school teacher by trade right now. She, she, um, you know, she, she wants and, and gets to be a, a stay-at-home mom with our kids, um, and she loves it. And we have three little ones, so. Uh, but uh, I love, I just love and respect people that that uh, you know have a, a heart for kids uh, like that and are doing something in, intentional about it. And one of my favorite things working here is you know um, when I first met the individual that I work for, the philanthropist. You know, I 
he asked he asked me so many questions I could never get an actually a, a question in, but finally I got one <laughs> and I said, Hey, well what do you what do you care about? And all he told me was, I care about children and the elderly. And so everything that we do goes to you know, is somehow connected to to kids, families, and and the elderly, and so um, it's a large part of my my life now. Um, and so, uh, just appreciate your your background uh, on that, and 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 that you're here with us. So, uh, tell us a little bit more details about your mission. Um, you know, whether it's personally or with Aaliyah, um, but what I mean, what is what is the your mission? What's the and you, you touched on this a little bit in your intro, but what are what's the problems you're trying to solve? Um, the opportunities that that you see that you're, you know, that you're trying to to engage in. Right. So, you know, the truth is, Chris, we just know more than we have ever known about what kids need to thrive. We we know more um, from the research is incredibly clear um, and compelling. Um, I know more than I've ever known just from doing it for a long time. Yeah. And there's a lot of practice wisdom out there and a lot of best practice and a lot of research out there. And and the truth of the matter is that the way in which we do child welfare, not only in this country, but really globally, does not align with our current understanding of what is best for kids. So the current system was really built on assumptions that we know to no longer be true. So those assumptions were that, um, you know, there were kids who would um, do better in other families, that Mm. someone could provide a better life for them. And that might be because they were poor and a wealthier family could provide a better life for them. And so we redistributed those children into other homes. It it might be because um, they were Black, brown, or indigenous children, and there were beliefs that they would fare better with white families. Um, but you know, there there's also um, you know uh, the idea that kids who are with families who are not able to safely care for them uh, would do better outside of their families. And so, I just want to be really clear that there are children who sometimes cannot live safely with their parents. Mm-hmm in the immediate, but that does not mean that they cannot live safely with their families or within their communities. And so what we're really interested in doing is, is supporting families to safely parent and to ensure that kids who um, cannot live immediately safely with their parents are able to stay within their family and their community, um, or how we phrase it usually is with someone they know and love or to whom they are related, right? So already trusted adults or related adults. And that's not the way the system is currently set up. We're not resourced to do that. Another really key and important factor here is that I have has been a shift for me in my professional development. I used to be a strong um, child advocate and really uh, was part of the um, I think the mindset of saving children, right, mm-hmm. from from uh, abusive or neglective environments. And what we have learned through the research and practice is that children fare better when they are with their own families, even when those families are less than perfect. So our system is really set up on 
a myth that when we remove kids, we will then very quickly find a great family for them who will love and care for them until they, you know, um, become adults and will continue to, to love and care for them into adulthood. But that is very frequently not what happens. Mm -hmm. Our kids go into a home and then they exhibit their pain-based behaviors, the pain of disconnection, the pain of, of trauma. And, and then they're asked to move because those behaviors are too severe. And then they go to the next home and the, and as soon as they feel safe enough to show their pain, they show those behaviors. And then, you know, they're said, well, we can't handle that in this home. And so they're asked to move again. And so many, many of our kids move from place to place to place and never have a sense of belonging or a sense of tethering, a sense of connection or identity of who they are and where they came from. And that causes a lifelong predictive harm. Yeah. So. We know now that children need an uninterrupted sense of belonging. And so the thing that has really shifted for me in my career is this. I have moved away from being strictly a child advocate into one that understands very deeply that what every child needs on the whole face of the earth, what every child needs is for their parents to be okay. And if their parents aren't okay, um, you know, we have to to intervene to to keep kids safe but right now we throw away those parents we punish them we shame them we blame them um and we have a cultural need really to to make them pay right instead of understanding that many many of those parents grew up in our system mm -hmm. um and or experienced abuse or neglect themselves that they were not safely parented and now once they turn 18 um, we have zero empathy or compassion for them and we remove their children and start the cycle all over again. And Chris, that doesn't solve the problem because they can continue to have other children. <laughs> they are dramatically more likely to die by suicide um, and overdose. It just exacerbates the problem. So what has happened in the development of my career is that I have come to understand if you love children, you must love their parents, even when they are unlovable. <laughs> most unlovable people need the most love, mm -hmm. right? And so if you care at all about children, you have to support their families to safely parent. And that's the real shift because I was not a parent advocate. I was not someone who came into the work to support parents. Frankly, it's not as exciting as saving children, rescuing children. Yeah. Um, there's a big rush that comes with that. Mm -hmm. But I am so abundantly clear on the evidence I have seen with my own eyes, as well as the research in our field and the practice in our field, that we have got to make a very fundamental shift, those of us who care about children, to understand you cannot care about children without also caring for their parents that nothing we ever do will substitute there. Mm -hmm. Nothing. They don't need us. They don't need our therapy and our services and they need their parents to be okay. That's where the healing comes. Yeah. Wow. There's, uh, you know, there's so many uh, nuggets in everything that you said. So I'm going to try to try to dissect, <laughs> dissect things and get a few questions out and, and, and try to, you know, build off of this. But 
you know, it, when, and I remember when you spoke to, you know, it's, it's emotional for me as it probably is for, for a lot of people, mostly just because the lessons that I've learned from my, my parents and I was, I was blessed with, with two, you know, great parents and, and blessed with, you know, two great cultures and perspectives. My dad was born and raised in the Philippines. And so that added to, you know, just my lens and my, my, my growth as a kid, but I get emotional because there's so many, I mean, I can't imagine, you know, uh, life without the lessons learned from, from my parents. And so, you know, when you talk about, um, these concepts of, you know, nobody can, obviously nobody can parent a child better than their parent. Uh, nobody can love a child more than their parent, you know, not just because of my parents, but, you know, I have three kids and, and they're the world to me, you know, my most important role in life is that of a, a husband to my, my wonderful wife and, and a father to my kids. And so it gets me emotional, just, you know, this topic itself. But, you know, when you talk about something that really stuck out to me, you know, you said, if we love kids, we need to love their parents. And, and the challenge there, and you spoke to this is it's not always easy <laughs> to love their parents. It's not always easy to love people that, you know, make bad choices or, um, you know, uh, are doing, you know, bad things at times. And, you know, that speaks to me, but not just to me, but to our, our institute here, our leadership institute at Groundwork, you know, some of our core curriculum is rooted in this idea of, of seeing people. And we even get down to this level, which we call deeply seeing people. And a friend of mine, uh, Chad Ford, he's the author of Dangerous Love, um, you know, he, he speaks to it best when he talks about dangerous love. Uh, and, and that's how we talk about deeply seeing people is, are we willing to love people even when they're not easy to love? Because uh, it's really, it's easy to love people when it's easy, right? Uh, you know, the friendship type of love or the romantic love or when things are going well, you know, it's easy to love a parent that seem, that has it together and is doing everything that, you know, on paper that they're supposed to do, right? But it's not when when they're not that way. And are we willing as a society and as people to love those individuals even when it's not easy to? And I, so that that really speaks to me because I think, you know, not just in the child welfare system, but in general in our society and in our country, we need a lot more of that deeply seeing and that loving dangerously um, and loving others even when it's when it's not easy. Um, yeah. I do have something more to say about that, if you'd allow me. Please, please. Can I do that? Okay. So, I mean, I think humans' natural state is really in loving kindness. So that's the way we we show up unless something has happened, yeah, Mm -hmm. to us to wire us for protection instead of connection. Our natural propensity, everything about babies, the way we come into the world is to wire us for connection because it's essential to our thriving When bad things happen, when our needs are not met, when we are caused harm, then we get wired for protection, right? The world is seen as an unsafe place. And so we exhibit pain-based behaviors, which are survival behaviors, because our experience has said, you cannot trust the world and those in it to meet your needs. And so what I feel like we have lost or not yet seen in our world is empathy and compassion for the idea that when people act in in painful ways, when they exhibit pain-based behaviors, it is an indication of pain they have experienced, right? It's not a natural thing to do to harm other people. 
And, and even I think, and I just want to go back to something that you said a minute ago around loving people make bad choices, um, to understand that so much of this is not choice. So much of this is hardwired from our early experience that folks who are experiencing substance use um, challenges are numbing deep, profound pain, Mm -hmm. right? That's a numbing response to the deep and profound pain. And so thinking about this, this is at sort of the root of the change work we do that we see bubble up is um, our, our deep rooted cultural beliefs about the worthy and unworthy poor. So this has biblical roots and this has cultural roots for us about who's worthy of help and who is unworthy of help, who is deserved. And if you think about, you know, cultural and biblical roots in this country um, are rooted really in this idea of who deserves help, orphans and widows, because they didn't, and I'm using air quotes you can't see on a podcast, (laughs) but they didn't choose their condition, right? Mm -hmm. But people who hurt their kids, they chose that. People who use drugs, they, in air quotes, chose that. People who um, choose their boyfriend over their child, they chose that. And what's really important, I think, from a place of empathy and compassion to understand is that I can promise you, like I would risk my, my professional reputation on the idea that people who do that were not safely parented. Mm-hmm. They did not have the protection they needed they did not have the connection they needed and they got wired for survival. Yeah. Right. So it's no longer a choice when your brain is wired for survival because you were under attack at your most vulnerable stage in life. Mm-hmm. And so us bringing this idea of compassion to the picture helps us to interrupt this intergenerational cycle of violence, um, this intergenerational cycle of harm, because if what we do is punish the parents and remove the children. We have not interrupted the cycle. Yeah. We then wire those children for protection because mm-hmm. we have removed their source of connection. And now they will repeat it just like their parents have repeated it. Mm-hmm. And so at some point we have to interject ourselves with empathy and compassion in seeing people as having experienced hurt and harm and restoring the capacity to connect with other humans, which is essential to our thriving. Yeah. No, that's powerful. Um, I, I love this idea of we're talking about choice, which I want to come, come back to, but you know, when you first mentioned this, um, uh, you know, this idea, which I agree with, you know, our, 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 there's so much, actually one time I was sitting at a conference, um, and and this is kind of the paradox of the idea of choice that I want to get to in a second. But uh, I'm sitting at a conference and I was sitting next to a psychologist uh, and um, I didn't know that he was actually the author of one of the featured sort of books. <laughs> you know, I didn't know at the time. Um, uh, but he said to me um, in a conversation, he said, you know, there's so much um, that we can't control, um, you know, in our lives. And, you know, had a brief conversation about it. And of course I agree. But then he said, there's so much that he said, if we knew how much we could control, we would, um, we wouldn't believe it. Um, and so this idea, this kind of paradox of choice is always really intriguing to me. And I think, you know, a lot of my work is, is centered around it, especially, you know, with my background, um, you know, academically and even professionally, you know, being in, in peace building and conflict resolution, um, uh, my, uh, 
my undergrad was in, in intercultural peace building and my, my master's was uh, conflict resolution. And one of the things, especially in peace building, that, that program, you know, my undergraduate just changed my life. It changed my whole perspective on how I see the world. But one of the things that challenged me the most is exactly what you're talking about is we would analyze some of the, you know, some of the biggest conflicts that we've seen in our world, genocide and just you know, awful things that, that human beings can do to each other. And one of the hardest things for, for me at the beginning, but it's been the most rewarding, was to look at those situations and have to have to admit and come to terms with, I'm capable of those things as well. And to me, that's where this, that's where I, I start to meet this this idea of compassion, of love, of empathy, is when I can start to understand that if I lived in their shoes and had their life and 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 had lived in the circumstances in which they did, I would be making I would likely be making the same decisions and I would be doing the same things. And that's a hard thing to come to terms with. Mm-hmm. It was for me, you mm-hmm. know, to look at something like genocide and actually challenge myself to say, these people are human beings and they were suffering in some way. And which is why they've made certain choices. And am I willing to admit that I'm capable of those things as well? Most, I, th- I think most people don't want to admit that they're capable of those sort of things. We look at a situation um, or we look at a parent, you know, or parenting somebody that's parenting and be like, how on earth could they do that? But the reality is, is, well, I could do that <laughs> and I'm certainly capable of it. And so that was transformative to me. And I think that that's what you're speaking to is is there's so much that's out of our you know control in our environment that shapes us that shapes our our lens that shapes our our decisions and our choices and uh to the point to where there's almost you know what well, what do we do i mean that's just that's how it is that's how we were that's how that's all we know and and then on the contrast you know because i also believe the other thing that this gentleman told me is that there's so much that we can control um that we and if we knew we wouldn't believe it and so this power of choice has always been really intriguing to me because you know i think that that life can strip us of of so many things and uh it can take away uh, so many things that we have uh, it can even take away our freedoms we can we can be completely imprisoned literally but there's this power of choice of how we see the world and how mm-hmm. we see others especially that nobody can ever um, take away, and that's the choice that I think, you know, uh, what that you're asking for that that we start to change is that we can choose to see things differently. We can choose to see, you know, these parents differently. We can choose to see the situation differently because that's the you know that's part of the power of choice that we we have. Yep. Um, and so those are just you know a million thoughts are going through my head with everything you're saying because I, I I love it and, and I'm resonating with it, but. Uh, I've been talking a lot, so I want you to be able to respond and share more of your thoughts. Yeah, I just want to add another dimension to that because, you know, I think there's just this fine line that can be rather dangerous. And 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 part of the really important part here is to understand um, for us in, in this country, especially the impact of racism and and the impact of privilege. So when when you have had privilege that you don't recognize as privilege because it's been your whole life, it's the air that you breathe. You don't even realize the perspective someone else has. Um, you know, when you when you come from that perspective, it's harder to build empathy, mm-hmm. right? Because you think, well, you know, 
so-and-so figured it out or I would have figured it out, but you don't understand all of the, the really unseen forces stacked against you. Or if you have grown up in privilege, you don't really understand the, the unseen forces stacked for you. And I don't mean privilege as in wealth. I mean, I grew up in a two-bedroom apartment with five siblings in the upstairs apartment of the of my grandfather's house. You know, we we had very, very little. I don't mean to say um, privilege, you know, and some people would say, oh, you're, you're not privileged um, uh, because of that. But I was deeply privileged. I was deeply privileged because of my race. I was deeply privileged because of, um, you know, the connections that my parents had through their family. Um, there were many, many points of privilege that, um, that I mean to say, it's not just a monetary experience. It's the experience of doors that are opened because I look like I do, or because I knew the people that I did. And so it's, that's what I mean when I say it's a dangerous fine line is we have to, in order to build empathy, really understand the experience of others who have not um, experienced the same, the same cultural privileges, the same privileges because of their race, the same privileges um, that come in many different forms and understand what barriers people are put up against. Mm-hmm. No, I, absolutely. You know, something that you that you mentioned reminded me just, you know, we talk a lot about with our leaders, this idea of self-awareness, but I think you know, self-awareness is such a key component that comes before empathy, right? Self-awareness leads to the ability to, I think, you know, to be empathetic for the reasons that, that you're talking about. And, and you know, privilege is, is a, the, the idea of privilege and the conversation about it's such a hot topic, you know, nowadays. And, and it's caused me to, to reflect upon, you know, my life quite a bit as well. And, you know, having a father who's, English was his third language. Uh, you know, he has a handicap in, in as well in, in his hand. He's he's older now, and obviously he's a person of color. You know, it, I've seen it. I saw it a lot growing up, right? But it was kind of normal to me. But now that I've become an adult, and <laughs> you know, uh, my first job out of college, you know, making more money than he ever made. Uh, and 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 having so many opportunities and doors open for me, and seeing how my father still struggles and and his in his uh his life the opportunities that i've had would be uh and i get you know i, I even get emotional t- thinking about it and talking about it would be a would be an absolute foreign concept or dream to him right and mm-hmm. it's because mm-hmm. it's because of like you said it, and you know growing up i would have never thought about it this way um you know i i kind of would suppress you know these these sort of ideas cuz my my father always taught me to just put my head down and go to work. And that's always been his perspective. And he's, he's never used anything like his, you know, his language or his, his, uh, the color of his skin as, as an excuse for anything. He's just never been that way. And so I never thought that way, but now that I'm an adult and I, and I see it, you know, I have a fair complexion. Uh, so, you know, Mm -hmm. and so I look, I look white, um, and I speak, I speak, you know, uh, good English, right? And uh, I've been blessed with opportunities that he's given me. And so I've had opportunities that he would have never had. And, um, you know, when I, see, when, I, when I see it as an adult, I see it more clearly than I did as a kid. As a kid, it was normal. It's like, oh yeah, dad's, 
we if we want something, we better have mom ask for it at a restaurant, <laughs> right? It was just normal. Uh, it was just normal growing up. But now that I have been my own adult and my own family and my own career, I see the difference clearly. And I know that's not the case for everyone, um, but I certainly you know, resonate with, uh, with what you're saying and, and the idea of self-awareness of, are we able to see those things, um, in our life and in others? Uh, because it, it does, I do believe that it does lead to an increased, um, level of empathy, of understanding, of love, of compassion. So. Yeah, for sure. That self-reflection does and that insight in yourself and proximity. I mean, it's so much easier to build empathy up close. There's Brian Stevenson who who runs the Criminal Justice Initiative says it's hard to hate people up close, right? And so when we hear people's story, when we get to know them, when we see them as human, when we see them as father and mother with the struggles, understanding what they have lived through and been through, um, proximity breeds empathy. And mm-hmm. so that's another way. Um, I think you're right to say our own reflection of our own self, our own insights, our own privilege, our own experience, but also being close to people (laughs) who are different than you, who are struggling. Um, You know, once you, you hear their story, it's really hard to maintain the idea that they should be punished. I used to have a friend who worked as a dispositional advisor in adult court, and she, her job was to find out what got this person to this place today. And to inform the court of sort of the background, the extenuating circumstances that might lead someone to be able to act in a way that they had acted criminally so they understood. I mean, and it is, it's an excruciating exercise to hear story after story after story about the lives that these people now before the court, um, what they, the torture they endured as children. Mm-hmm. You know, and not a surprise to any of us that understand trauma. Not a surprise. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, you know, growing up, I, I had a, a pretty, you know, strong addiction. And so it's, it's changed my perspective when I meet, you know, addicts. Um, there's just an immediate level of understanding um, that comes with it. But, uh, but even, even what I experienced was, you know, nowhere near, um, uh, other folks that I've met. And when I was working at the Arbinger Institute, I had the privilege of working at a, you know, it was kind of like a, it was an innovative uh, treatment center for adults, uh, both men and women. It's in downtown Salt Lake it's called the Other Side Academy. And uh, student, they call them students there. And, and these people there ranged in age from 20s to gosh, 50s, 60s across the board, but they call them students and they had to apply to get in. And, you know, there, it's not like it was the, all of these individuals were incarcerated and had, you know, a lot of challenges in their life, um, drugs and, and you name it. And so, but it was voluntary. So they weren't forced to be there. They, they actually did, like I said, they had to apply and there was no guards, you know, they could leave at any time and they could also be kicked out if, you know, they weren't obviously following, um, the guidelines and, and going with the program. But, at the Arbinger Institute, we had the privilege of going on Sundays to just hear their, their, um, they would have like a debrief of the week, you know, just an open share out. And we'd, we, it was in one of the old mansions they remodeled down, downtown in Salt Lake. And so we'd, we'd rally in this, you know, the living room of the mansion. There'd be tons of people just crammed. We'd be shoulder to shoulder. 
And we just got to hear these individuals share um, how their week was. And, uh, and, you know, and then at the end, we would kind of do a little bit of presenting on some of the principles and, and whatnot at the Arbinder Institute. Uh, but it was incredible. That was my f- favorite time of my week, just hearing people talk about their weeks. And 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 I'm, the reason why I thought of this is because you said it's it's hard to hate or judge people when you're close to them, when you're right there next to them, like physically, literally when you're there. Yes. And I think stories can do that from afar. You know, you can be close to people through a story and understanding, but when you're physically there, I mean, I remember some of the stories that I would hear and just the judgment, I, I, it was weird. I would do these little experiments where somebody would stand up because everybody would stand up when they would share their, their week. And I would realize all the judgments that I would cast on them just by how they would look and how they would talk. But then how quickly it would go away when I would hear <laughs> them talk. And one of my favorite examples was this, this gentleman, um, uh, you know, I'll leave his name out of it, but he was big guy, probably six, four, six, five, um, you know, bald head. Obviously I'm fond of bald guys. I'm bald, but he, he had, <laughs> he had tattoos just everywhere else. Like, I mean, his whole body was covered in tattoos and obviously there's a lot of stereotypes and judgment that comes with full body tattoos of that nature. And, you know, I, I actually, I, you know, I like tattoos. I, I like, I'm an artist. I love to, to see those things, but you know, I see him stand up and I quickly have these judgments, you know, uh, of who this guy is and, and everything before he even opens his mouth. And, and then right when he starts to talk, you know, it all changes. And this is what he, he said, and it, I'll, I'll never forget it, but he says, you know, with holding back tears, he says, you know, I've, I was taught as a kid to pray. And, you know, I, I was raised in a Christian household. I was taught to pray. And the way I was taught to pray was you, you give thanks for things that you have and you ask for blessings. But he said, for the last, you know, X amount of years of my life, I've hated the concept of prayer because I feel like there's nothing in my life to be thankful for. And I don't feel like I should be asking for blessings. I don't feel worthy of it. And, and then he started to cry. He couldn't hold back his tears. He said, this is the first week in a long time that I've been able to say a prayer and actually list a couple of things that I'm thankful for. And he said, you know what the top thing is that I'm thankful for? And he points um, to another individual um, who used to be a, you know, a, a pretty high up in a, in a, in a Mexican gang, uh, has the 13 tattoo right on his neck and everything. And he points to him and he says, you're the first thing that I've been thankful for uh, in a long time. He said, as soon as I showed up here, you've helped me feel welcome and you've helped me feel seen and cared about. Um, and he says, I can't express how good it feels to be thankful for something. And he says, I'm, I'm starting to feel like I'm also worthy of, uh, of blessings. And that, I mean, I, you know, I couldn't, I just lost it, you know, Uh, mostly because this idea of here's a judgment I placed just immediately. And then a second later, this guy is so real to me. Um, you know, as, as I am to myself. And that's what, I mean, that's what we preach at the Arbinger Institute. That's what I preach. See people as people, but I, I, I off, I always fall into the trap of, well, I'm judging and I'm, I'm not fully seeing them. But then, you know, you hear, you get a little glimpse of, of somebody's life. Um, and, you know, like you said, it's, 
I, I don't want any punishment. You know, he has to, he has to, you know, try to make things right in his own life for things that he's, he's done. But I, it's like, man, I, you know, I, I love this guy. I don't, I just, I have a sense of love and empathy and compassion. So, um, yeah, I could talk about this stuff all, all day with you. Um, but, uh, you know, we're, we have about 15 minutes left. I want, I want to get into, um, you know, the impact of leadership, um, in all of this. And I see it mm-hmm. in several areas as you've been talking, you know, cause there's, there's systematic changes that need to happen and le- leaders are, are so important in, in those sort of changes, um, from, you know, the big picture all the way down to the interpersonal interactions. So, you can take it wherever you'd like, but I'd love to just ask you the question of how important is leadership um, in all of this? Yeah, it's um, it's foundational. It's so important to have um, leaders who not only understand and deeply believe this um, this knowledge we have about trauma and the importance of human connection and you know, what happens to kids who are removed from their families, even when their families are less than perfect, Mm -hmm. that removal is still far worse. Um, And I would invite those who who question the legitimacy of that claim to um, read the research brief uh, to make the case against family separation on the Aaliyah website. Um, But there there is strong evidence to say that um, removal is worse for the children and creates lifelong predictive harm as well as for the parents. And so leaders who understand that deeply and who are deeply committed to keeping families safely together, you know, really holding that vision um, in the face of a system that is set up to do the opposite, that is set up really to punish and blame and shame and disconnect, um, to instead lean into empathy and healing and connecting um, is is a really um, it's, a, it's an act of bravery. And um, I work with leaders on the leading edge of change. So leaders who are really interested in fundamentally transforming their work to use an anti-racist approach to uh, co-design and um, work with folks with lived experience leading the work and um, who are really interested in divesting their um, power and resource to community for communities um, to help work to keep families safely together. And so that that act of bravery does not come without consequence. Um, many leaders I work with undergo a very strong backlash to their disruptive innovations. Um, and some have paid, you know, significant sacrifice, including their livelihood, uh, in order to stand up for what they know to be right. And so the courage of leadership, the courage to go first, the courage to build new ways when all elements of the system are leaning into maintaining the status quo, despite the fact that we know that um, that is not what what families and children need. Um, I work with people who are incredibly brave there. And so part of our work has evolved into um, really supporting and preparing change makers who are brave enough to do this work, to prepare them for what may come, to help them to, um, you know, really build the coalitions and the alliances necessary to withstand 
the backlash because what I have learned is it takes a lot of people to create change a lot and it can take one or two to tear the whole thing down Mm -hmm. that if you have the um, people who are connected in the right ways um, a few lone voices um, if powerful enough can really undo a lot of progress and so um, so leadership to me is essential because it it is um, not only holding the hope and vision that things can be different, but the conviction that things must be different and the bravery to then go forth and build the right um, collaborations and alliances to operationalize that change to actually make it different. Um, and so I have a deep, deep amount of ab- admiration for leaders in child welfare um, and really all leaders who are on the precipice of changing systems that no longer work for us, um, systems that need to be adjusted to be more empathetic, more inclusive, and more aligned with what we know humans need to be able to live um, in ways that help them to thrive. Yeah. What, you know, you mentioned this in, in all, with all leaders, what could, I mean, what's the difference when you have leaders across sectors that come together, you know, for causes such as this? What's the power that's there? Um, and what would you say to to leaders that, you know, if I'm, let's say I'm a, you know, private private sector business owner, what my business has, you know, on paper, nothing to do with, with the child welfare system. How can someone like that um, still be helpful and impactful as a, as a leader in a community? I know there's a few questions there, but. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just critical for all of us to understand that the fabric of our society is family. It is the place where we learn to love or hate. It is the place where we learn how to be in collaborative union with our fellow humans or where we learn to wire ourselves for protection and therefore do harm out of survival instinct. Um, so that fundamental unit of of the experience of children when they are young, the experience of family, um, as a society, we need to pour all of our best into that, our best resource, our best time, our best support into ensuring that those early years are um, are safe and um, and support the the thriving of of children and and thereby their parents in order to help them thrive. And the reason is because that childhood trauma is at the root of every social ill that we face. So depending on what happens there, we'll predict, I mean, mean, the research is abundantly clear here. Again, it's a lifelong predictive harm in your health outcomes. I mean, it can predict if you have heart disease, lung disease, liver disease, disease, diabetes, your incidence of, of all kinds of health events are predicted by your early childhood experience. I mean, in really clear and in multiply repeated ways and those studies have been done. So it is at the root of our homelessness. It's at the the root of um, uh, educational gaps. It it is at the root of teenage pregnancy, of drug use. It is at at the root of virtually every social ill that we are trying to face. So We can continue to chase symptoms. We can continue to pour our resources collectively into what happens when it doesn't go well, or we can invest in ensuring that 
families are supported to safely parent. And so if you are a person in the community, you think child welfare has nothing to do with me. Actually, child welfare is the red flag that says families are struggling. And when families are, are struggling, um, we are all going to struggle. So it means, you know, from a, a, a simple resource analysis, it means that your tax dollars will be used for juvenile justice, for imprisonment, for additional educational supports needed for youth who struggle behaviorally or academically in school. It means your tax dollars will go to housing the homeless for, for uh, you know, um, community mental health, for, for um, you know, public health reasons that, that we could be using to build, you know, enrich our, all of our lives, to build beautiful spaces and wonderful education and, and you know, premier health uh, care without all of us struggling to do so. So we make choices as a community around where we put our attention and where we put our resources. And right now, um, I'll go back to what I said earlier around that worthy and unworthy poor. Um, what I see is that people are willing to spend $100 to remedy a symptom rather than give you $1 you didn't earn or deserve. And so when we start thinking that way, we're really hurting our own selves, right? So we're ending up um, attending to so many social challenges and unrest that had we, had we worked in prevention, had we worked in supporting families, had we worked to ensure that children were safely raised, um, we wouldn't be facing a lot of the things that we are. And I think people are looking around the world right now thinking, Things have gotten so bad. How did we get so divided? How did how did it get so violent? How did we? There's so much crime and and there's and so much discontent and the uprisings and and I I think it would be easy to look around and to think, oh my gosh, we're in a really bad place and I don't see a way out or I don't have hope that this is going to get better. You know the ways we are um, working and not working together around the pandemic. I mean, there's just so many things that you could be discouraged by. And I just want to really say the ways I remain very encouraged is to know that we know where these seeds are planted. Mm-hmm. We, we know where, where the seeds of division and hatred and, and, and crime and othering, we know where they are planted. And so we know where to go to ensure that that soil is tended and fertilized. We know where to go to ensure that our children um, are raised wired for connection and not protection. So if you are a person in the community, if you are a business person, if you are someone who cares about humanity, um, you have to care about what happens to our children. And if you care about what happens to our children, you have to support their parents because it it is the only way out is through them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's what I would say is that you can't escape this. There aren't enough gates on your gated community. There are not enough places to move away to. Uh, there are not enough channels to turn to come away from it. We are all in this together. And that means that we all need to be thinking about how we build the important fundamental building blocks of supporting families in our society that are really not there. It is really hard to raise children in the United States, much harder than in other countries. And we have moved away from a collaborative, a caring, empathetic approach to ensuring our children 
have what they need. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think that, um, you know, we're coming to a time where we're going to have to get back to that if we want some of the, some of the things that we used to enjoy back. And if we want, um, if we want all people to be able to live in a way that, uh, doesn't look like it does right now, (laughs) because I think we're all ready for a little more hope and, and, um, optimism than we're able to get from our daily news these days. Yeah. So much good and truth in everything you you just said. And, you know, Amelia, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things to to like about you, but, uh, you know, one of the things that you just, you mentioned, you know, is at the top of the list for me. Um, uh, and it's, you know, our, the families are just a key, um, you know, part of, of our society cornerstone, even if, if you will. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't agree more. I know here, you know, at Mountain West, we, we agree also that families are, are key. And, and I personally believe that, you know, the, 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 I don't know the right word, the destruction of, of families will lead to the destruction of our societies. Um, I, I really believe that, um, and, uh, you know, I also believe, uh, in the old saying of the way that we treat our, our children is a direct reflection of, of our society that we have. And I think there's a lot of work to, to do there. Um, a lot of hope as well, a lot of opportunities to be better. Um, but I absolutely, you know, agree that, that families are, are such a, a, a key part to, to our communities and to our, our life. And, um, if we have strong families and if we're helping families and and helping our own family and helping each other, you know, that's, those are big steps to, to improving what we see right now and what's out there, um, uh, right now. So I appreciate, I appreciate, uh, um, you sharing all of that into the, to the aspect of, of leadership. You know, we also believe in, in exactly what you're saying is that, it, this these are problems that are one they're they're root i mean they're rooted deeply um and so i i i we're a big fan of let's not put band-aids on things let's get to the real problem um and it's hard it's hard work it's hard to you know we use the analogy of soil seeds and weeds a lot in our in institute and it's hard to get to the root the very deepest of roots but that's the work we should be doing and if I'm going to show up and, and work and, and, and do hard things every day, I might as well be doing it towards things that are getting to the root of these issues. And so I, right. I, I believe in, in that a hundred percent and, and that it's not a, just a problem of the child welfare system or people at state agencies or nonprofits. It's a, it's a problem for everyone. It's, it's a challenge for everyone and, and everyone um, should be concerned and thinking about it. And that's one of our goals as well as a leadership institute is to bring leaders across sectors together to solve these sort of issues and to give them a common language and and lens and camaraderie to do so because one of my biggest pet peeves is showing up to a meeting of any sort but we'll talk in this case a community meeting we have all these people and they all are at the table because they agree there's a problem and there's and and so they want to fix it but everybody has a different perspective on how to fix it and everybody has a different perspective on what to do and why it exists. And so that's all they talk about. And then we never actually talk about getting, getting to the root of the problem. And so, you know, one of our goals in, in creating groundwork is how can we get past all of that quickly 
and and give everybody a common language um, and a common community, something they have in common and and something that they can tackle together and use similar tools and, and ways of thinking um, to address it, not neglecting what they individually bring to the table and their own, you know, uh, um, perspectives, but, uh, but how can we get them to work together? And so our goal is in years down the road, we have hundreds and hundreds of alumni in leadership positions in our community that can come together mm-hmm. and talk about something and just get, get to it and get to work. Um, so I love everything yeah, you said. It resonates with us and resonates with me. A big piece of that, Chris, is for me, um, it's really working to leave ego out of it. It's that, mm-hmm. you know, it it needs to be done. It doesn't need to be me who does it, right? It just needs to be done. And and there are lots of right ways to get to the answer, but it needs to be done. And so, you know, the two elements for me that are really important there is building trust and and um, incidentally, those who have experienced childhood trauma have a really hard time forming trusted relationships. Um, and so that gets harder when you're when you're uh, working with folks who have experienced trauma. Um, but it's really important. And the time we spend to build trusted relationships with each other is time very well spent because you and I both know that if you trust somebody, um, you give them a lot of grace, mm-hmm. you give them a lot of leeway, and you have a lot of empathy because you know their story. And so... Um, our time spelt, spent building trust with each other is important, but also um, just understanding that we're going to all do better when we all do better, right? And so leaving the ego out of it becomes really important. And I see in our field a lot of vying for, I want to be the one or, you know, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of collaboration and and um, and there, there tends to be a lot of, um, you know, um, uh, individuation and, and, and can be some ego in it. And that is something we've got to overcome because this, we have come to a place now in our, in our world where our problems are so complex and so large, they will never be solved until we all come together to solve them. Absolutely, There is plenty for everyone to do. There's lots of places to grab on. Um, and, and it is going to be, you know, uh, the, 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 the telling of whether or not we are able to work through some of these large societal population problems is how well we can figure out how to trust each other and work together because yeah. it'll take every one of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, our, we have a quote, right? First thing you see when you walk in our office right by the front door is, um, I don't even know who's the original author of this quote is, but it, you know, it's on the wall. It says, you know, you can get a lot done when you don't care about who gets the credit. Yes. Um, and we try to live by that um, here. And, mm-hmm. you know, one other thought on trust, because uh, I, I agree with you um, and something I, I have to reiterate a lot in conflict when I'm mediating or working with, with folks through conflict is that trust is trust. Oftentimes people think it's just, you know, a, a, an automatic that, you know, we need, tr- you know, it's an ex- expectation. Well, I can't work with you until we have until you trust, you know, you you trust me. Yeah. But. Trust is something that's built, right? It's built. It's built together. It's not a, it's not a prerequisite. Trust is not a prerequisite to to a great relationship. It's something that's built. You you, you don't enter, you know, something with trust. You have to build it together. Um, and so, I, you know, I love your your thoughts on on trust. Um, you know, we have to wrap up here. So I have one last question for you. But I, you know, I thought of a a quick story. I thought you would appreciate. You know, we talked about families and kids and 
and a proud parenting moment I had. I think it's mostly my wife that causes my son to think this way, but I actually shared this on a podcast uh, we did earlier this week. But I, I was in the ER with my son over the weekend. He jumped, you know, classic jumping on the bed, fell off and bunked his head, right? Like the 10 little monkeys. My, my son has stitches from that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So Saturday night, you know, it's bedtime. They were He was supposed to be in bed. And we have an uh-huh. eight-month-old who we're in the process of kind of sleep training. And, and she shares a room with her sister. So my oldest is six. So she was sleeping in my son's room with him. They weren't sleeping. They were just playing around. And uh, I'm downstairs and I hear a thud and a cry. And, and my wife mm-hmm. comes running down with Mateo, my son. He's three years old and is in her arms and a lot of blood, you know. And he, he, he jumped and fell back and hit his head on the windowsill. Big old gash, you know, down to the skull. So we had to obviously go to the ER. And, uh, you know, it, it, everything worked out. But we're sitting in the ER and uh, and it was just me with him and he's sitting on my lap and he's, you know, he's no longer crying and he's back to his normal self. He's a really funny kid, just making people laugh. And, and one of the nurses comes in and she says, uh, you know, she's, she's teasing, uh, teasing him and, and, and uh, talking with him. And, uh, and, and he, you know, he's really funny. He asks really specific questions and he says, how come you are, wor- how come you are working right now? Why aren't you home? <laughs> <laughs> and you know it's late because it was late it was about 10 30 yeah. at night and she's like well i this is my shift i have to work all night long i get off at 6 a.m you know like like way in the morning and he was just so wow you work at night why do you work at night let's you know but why aren't you with your family and she says well mm-hmm. i gotta make a living and then she says one day you'll have to do the same thing you're gonna have to find a way to make a living and then she, you know, jokingly says, maybe you'll be, you know, uh, uh, maybe you work at a hospital. Maybe you'll be a doctor. You want to be a doctor? And then he, and this was the proud dad moment. Um, and I would love for him to be a doctor if he wanted to, but this is what he said. He said, no, no, I don't want to be a doctor. <laughs> and she's like, really? What do you want to be? And he said, I want to be a dad. <laughs> oh. Yeah, that was the first thing he said. That was the best answer ever. It was. It was awesome. My heart melted. He says, I want to be a dad. And then she said, you know, she responded wonderfully, just, that's so awesome that you, you know, you have that goal. I bet you're, that made your dad proud. And then she said, but what do you want to do for, for work? And he said, well, I like to work with kids. So I want to work with kids. <laughs> Very so, sweet. Yeah, it was, uh, it was awesome. So something, uh, my wife is probably doing is, is right. <laughs> Um, uh, to, to have my son, as a I'd say, and way. you to want to be a dad. Yeah. He's, yeah. The kids are, like I mentioned earlier, they're the, they're the joy and, and everything, um, in my life. So, well, uh, last question and then we'll wrap it up. Um, I like to ask this question. It's kind of, you know, more abstract, but, uh, if you could share, if you're comfortable, um, a leader in your life that you admire, you know, that has been a, a major inspiration to you? I'm sure you have many, but if you could pick one off the top of your head right now, who is it and why? Yeah, it's very easy. It's um my my mentor, Jack Tesmer. Um, he's actually passed away, but he worked at 3M in um, the organizational development area. And so he taught me a lot of things about change a lot of things about fortitude. I used to say that my meetings with him felt like Jedi training. (laughs) He would say something to me that I have repeated to many a leader, which is, this is not happening to you. 
This is happening for you. It is preparing you for the next bigger thing you must do. Mm -hmm. So pay attention. Learn everything you can because you're going to have to help somebody else through this part too. And that has really just stuck with me and resonated with me and really shifted my mindset to say that, you know, I am, as I do hard change work, um, being prepared to do more for more and to share what I have learned. So I look at it as being forged rather than being, you know, having it happen to me and feeling like I'm being victimized. So that's one of the things I'd share. That's awesome. Love that. I love, I love, uh, you know, your meetings with, with him felt like Jedi training. <laughs> I have a few people in my life yep. that feels the same. That's a great way to put it. Um, well, you know, I want to respect your time. I uh, greatly appreciate the time you've taken. Um, I know you're busy. Um, for what it's worth, you have a fan of, of what you're doing and what you're advocating for in terms of the perspective that you have um, here in Oregon, and that's in me. And I know there's a lot of other people here uh, that, uh, feel the same. Um, which is why we, you know, we had you come out here a couple of years ago. Um, and so I just, I appreciate you, um, uh, appreciate your perspectives and, um, and what you've shared and the connections, uh, even though small we've been able to make and the stories you've shared, it's allowed me to see you, um, you know, more as a person. And I, I love those moments. So just want to say thank you. And I hope that we can have, you know, future interactions. Me too. And I hope one day we're back in person because I'm sure missing being with people um, up close. So uh, let's hope that uh, things evolve so that we're able to see each other in person again. But I appreciate the time today, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. All righty. Well, you take care and um, have a have a great week. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Mm -hmm. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right. Uh, well, as always, when we have a, a great guest like that, uh, you know, not a whole lot to say other than, um, you know, amen uh, to what, what they shared. Uh, well said, well put, a lot of great insight that Amelia has. Um, you know, and I, I never really plan these out. I have a few talking points, but we love for these to be organic and they always take that course. So some of the things that I share and that we talk about, I had no idea I was going to think them or share them. And so appreciate all of you listeners for tuning in and for listening and understanding and and uh, pushing yourselves to to stretch your perspectives. Um, and you know, one question that that I would leave for you um, as you've reflected upon what Amelia and I have spoken about is, you know, we talked a lot about this idea. You talked a little bit about choice, but the choice that we have to change our perspective because before systems change, before structures change and policies, people have to change and we have to be willing to change our perspective. And so in your life and in your leadership and in your, whether you're a leader or not in your life, are you willing to ask yourself the ways that you can change um, before you expect some sort of policy system, etc., to change? It's really easy to look out and and think uh, that should change. But are you willing to change first um, is the question that I ask you. So thanks for tuning in. Uh, this is the Rooted Leadership Podcast. It's been so great um, having everyone tune in and having Amelia on today. Until next time, uh, be safe and talk to you soon. <laughs>